I believe that God has something that he wants to say to us, and, and that is one of the primary reasons why our screens aren't working. It's one of the primary reasons why there, there even seems to be kind of like a tension in this room at this moment. But listen, I couldn't get over, Jeff, and I want you to hear this, I couldn't get over that last song where Callie was in Hannah's arms and they were singing together as one family leading us. And, and that's something I want to make sure that's said uh, this morning. At Revolution Church, listen, we love families, we love kids. I love my son over here on the side. And I love to see Callie up there because she's not willing to sit, you know, off the stage with anyone else because she just wants to be with her mom and her dad as they praise God together. And so we're going to be okay with the, the wiggles and giggles this morning. Can we do that? As a church family, can we be okay with the families that are here this morning? I think that that would be a good thing. So Hannah and Jeff, thank you so much for leading us in worship, even though it may have felt a little off to you or maybe even a little stressful. We love you guys, and we love the fact that y'all are able to lead us into the throne room of grace, singing songs to God. Uh, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to I pray one more time, and here's why. I want to pray because I do feel that there's some tension. I do feel that there's some weight this morning, and I don't want that. This, this, this whole message that I think God has laid on my heart is all about this idea of tension and being free from the weight of shame and guilt. So let's pray together. In the name of the true Lord Jesus Christ, God, we recognize that you have something you want to say just by the fact that we're about to open up your word to us. And so, God, we pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit would move in this, this place this morning. That you would already right now begin to remove the, the weight of shame, the weight of, of guilt, maybe some kind of tension that we came in this building with, or maybe some tension that's come up since we've gotten here. God, we pray that you would rework this morning, that you would, you would fulfill the promise you make in Romans 8:28, where you say you are working all things for our good, the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And so God... Speak this morning. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts to the truth and bring us freedom in your grace. God, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have to rely on some archaic technology called a Bible that, that hopefully is either in your hand or on your phone. Some way you have uh, the, the ability to access it because we're not going to have it technologically on the screens for you. However, our version is working, so if you've got that version app, you can find the Revolution Church event there, and the scriptures will be on that. Otherwise, here's what I want you to go ahead and do. I want you to turn in your Bibles, whether you're, you're sliding on a screen or you've, you're turning pages. Listen, go ahead and find your way to John chapter 21. Now, I know we're continuing this week, in case you haven't guessed, with the misnomer. Mis, mis I don't even know how to say this word in this moment. But it's called a series in First Peter. We've entitled it Revolutionary as a play on our church's name, yes, but it's my second week here. I can be punny a little bit, you know. But the reason I wanted to do that, I mentioned it last week, and the reason I want us to take a look at some of the revolutionary ideas we find in First Peter is because with a name like Revolution, people are going to expect some things coming into this building. They're going to expect that when things go wrong with our technology, that we're going to roll with the punches. All right? We're not going to get caught up in whether or not something's on a screen. 
You know, with a name like Revolution, people are going to come in here with their tension and brokenness from this past week because they're hoping against hope that somehow, some way, they might meet or encounter Jesus this morning. And so that's our prayer. We want to see that happen. All right? And so that's the reason I entitled the series Revolutionary, because all throughout the letter of 1 Peter, there are concepts that fly in the face of what is typical or normal for this day and age. Even in churches, and even in churches in America, we're going to find some concepts in that letter that are different. But before we go there, just like last week, I want us to continue to look at who Peter was. All right? Last week I asked for some key thoughts that come to your mind when you hear the name Peter, and so we tackled the concept of Peter uh, walking on the water towards Jesus. And everyone focuses on the fact that he sank in the water and he took his eyes off of Jesus. But guys, we got to see some revolutionary faith in Peter's life in Matthew 14. And so this, this Sunday, today, we're going to take a look, however, at perhaps the far more well-known story in Peter's life. See, perhaps the number one thing that comes to all of our minds when we hear the name Peter is the concept of denial. Peter is is the most well-known for denying Jesus three times before Jesus was crucified. We find it in all four Gospels. He can't get away from this, right? And that's why I love chapter 21 of the book of John. Because in chapter 21, Peter and the rest of the disciples with him, to be honest, they encounter the revolutionary grace of God. And since we don't have screens to be able to show you the definition for grace that I'm working with, I'm going to share that with you right now. When I say grace, when the Bible says grace, it is talking about the limitless love of God for undeserving people. So I'm going to say that again. When the Bible speaks about grace, it's speaking about the limitless love of God for undeserving people. I want you to point at yourself for a second. You and me are undeserving people. Every single one of us has, has done something that we regret Every single one of us, just as Shane was talking about how these technological difficulties occur because we're in this broken world, so sometimes things just don't go right. Listen, we've all experienced in our life moments where things are not going right. Maybe because we caused them to go bad. But sometimes it has nothing to do with what we did. Sometimes bad things happen to good people because we live in a broken world. But that's why Jesus came to set things right. And he's going to do that this morning with, with Peter. So last week I, I, I brought up the, the, the passage in 1 Peter that sets the stage for the whole series. In, in chapter 5, verse 12 of the letter of 1 Peter, Peter gives us the reason for why he writes. And it's, in, it's important for us this morning. Because in, in chapter 5, verse 12, he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true Grace of God. So stand firm in it. Peter's whole purpose in writing is that you and I and the people in the churches back in his day would stand firm in the grace of God. And what's the definition? What does the Bible mean when it talks about grace? Limitless love 
of God for undeserving people. Are we good? We've got that. We, we kind of know the concept before we even get into John chapter 21. All right. All right. So that's the concept. That's the, the idea we're, we're, we're going to move with. And so here's where I want us to be, okay? As we come to chapter 21, we're going to encounter Peter and six other disciples in perhaps their darkest moment. And the reason I can say that is because it's at the place of their deepest shame. That's the background for John 21. Jesus has died on the cross for unbelieving sinners, especially for these disciples that we're about to read about in John 21. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again after three days, proving that he was given power over sin and death. And that same power that Jesus exerted when he came back from the grave is the same power that he wants to see at work in every single one of us. Grace. Revolutionary grace calls us out of sin and shame and into new life with purpose. So go ahead and look in the first verse there. Go ahead and, 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 and see where we're going to be. After this, Jesus revealed himself in verse 1 of chapter 21. And again, he reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So once again, we see Peter named first as the foremost disciple. And Simon Peter, in verse 3, said to the other six, I'm going fishing. That sounds nice right about now after this morning, right? Maybe to ease some tension or or whatever, right? I'm going fishing, and the rest say to him, well, we're going to go with you. And so they all get into the boat, and they go out at night, and they fish all night long. But what we're told is they catch nothing, okay? And they catch nothing. And, and, and here we are. Jesus has already come back from the grave. He's already appeared to these disciples once and twice. Even doubting Thomas has now seen Jesus when Jesus appeared in the middle of a locked room, showing Thomas the nail prints in his wrists and the spear wound in his side, proving that it really was him, and showing Thomas, listen, you believe now because you've seen, but greater are those who believe even though they don't see me. And that's us this morning. If we're believers in Christ, we've never seen him, but we believe anyway. And so why these seven disciples decide to go fishing, we're not told. We don't know why. But here's what I want to propose to you. It's something I've always considered. Them going fishing, this is the action of some men who are glad that their Savior is back from the dead, but they're heavy-hearted because every single one of these seven individuals ran away from Jesus when he was arrested. Every single one of them ran away in fear. And Peter, perhaps more than the rest, because we know the account that he denies Jesus. He denies the fact that he ever knew Jesus. And that's crazy, because they had just spent three years living with Jesus. Going from countryside to countryside, walking miles. I mean, if they had Fitbits, their their steps would number in the millions together. I mean, these were some fit dudes, okay? Walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, experiencing the love of God through him, experiencing the limitless love of God for undeserving people. They knew the grace of God. 
and yet heavy-hearted, they go back to a practice that used to earn them their living before they encountered Jesus. These, these seven were fishermen. And so here they go back to it. And it's shame, I think, that drives them. They're happy Jesus has returned, but there's some serious weight on their shoulders. Shame. Deep-rooted shame. The kind of shame that causes you not to think of anything else. The kind of shame that can kind of crop back up and lead to depression, where you, you, you don't want to do anything else you, you, you can't do anything but remember and recall to your mind time and time again your actions, what you did or what was done to you, perhaps, that's caused you some shame. And I've experienced similar shame in my life. I, and and, and, and it, it might even sound like a trivial story for you this morning, but this, this memory I'm about to share in the, in the years past has been my darkest secret. In fact, if I was to stand before Jesus and, and, and him caused me to give an account of every sin I've ever committed, I would prefer any other sin be shown on the big screen rather than this story I'm about to share. Uh, my older brother, uh, he had, he had a, a cancerous tumor in his brain. And it was removed when he was a kid, probably around the age of like 8 or 10. It's really hazy for me. Lots of stuff has happened since then. But he had a tumor on his pituitary gland to where when the, 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 the surgeons at Le Bonheur, when they when they took it out, they had to remove the pituitary gland with it. And as, as he got older, his bone structure remained at that kind of level of density as a 10-year-old. He wasn't, he wasn't receiving the growth hormones or the testosterone he needed to grow. That's what the pituitary gland regulates. And more than that, as he got older, we also were able to diagnose him with a, a syndrome called Asperger's. It's on the autism scale. Now, my brother's high-functioning. You know, he's, he's learned in a lot of ways to cope with some of these things. But when he was younger, not so much. When he was younger, we were just now learning what that even meant. I mean, it wasn't even really a, a, an understood syndrome in, in the medical community. But as we got older, I got stronger. I grew taller. He stayed the same. And I can remember back in, like, middle school, we had those toy lightsabers. You know what I'm talking about? Half of everybody in here has owned a toy lightsaber at some time. If not, you can buy them still. That's fine. You know, We know Shane has, like... 30. So, so my brother and I, we were, we were playing with these lightsabers out in the backyard. I, I can remember. And we, we would play together or we'd fight or we'd do all kinds of stuff when we were kids. But, but this time in middle school, I can remember we were like fighting each other with these toy lightsabers. And I can remember this moment. He finally lands a blow on me. And I mean, that hurt. But I mean, come on, it's one blow. I mean, I'm, I landed a million on him. You know what I'm saying? You know? But all of a sudden, his face lights up. I mean, he's excited. And he just keeps, like, like, shouting it from the rooftops, like, I hit you, I hit you, I got you. You know, forget all the other times I totally beat him at this game. And the one time he, like, hits me, you know, he's just excited. And in that moment, I get, my pride just wells up and I get angry. What? No way. And so I, I lash out at him, and I just start wailing on him, like one hit after another after another. And listen, the image I have from that memory is of his face crying, totally humiliated as he goes inside with, covered in welts. And, and to you, it might sound small. But to me, it's one of my darkest 
memories. Because, see, my brother had been ridiculed his whole life because of his weight, because of his tumor, because of his Asperger's. And in that moment, the reason it causes me so much shame is because in that moment I was no different than those people who, who ridiculed him and abused him and made fun of him. And I would rather face any other sin in my life than have to face that one standing before Jesus. And I know that sounds small, but for me, that's shame. And for years, that weighed me down. So I know shame, but I know you know shame too. Because we've all done things we regret. We've all done things that we wish that no one else would know. And here's the thing. For the most of us, our shame is totally private. No one else knows about it. That's why it's a secret. That's why we can keep them from friends and, 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 and loved ones because they don't know these things. But the problem with these disciples is we're reading about their shame. We're reading about Peter's denial of Christ. It's very public. And so let's, let's see what happens here. They, 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 they go out on this boat and they, and they fish. And all night long they're fishing, but they catch nothing. But notice what happens in, in the next verse. Just as day was breaking in verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Jesus loves doing stuff like this. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And so he says to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it again, as if they hadn't already tried it on the right side of the boat. But next thing you know, there are so many fish that their net can't even haul it on board. So many fish. They can't even haul this thing on board. And, and I, I love this, this moment because, obviously, you know, Jesus knows they've been at this all night. He's God, right? And so he knows they haven't caught anything, yet he meets them right there, and he tells them to try again. He's directing them, as if to, to bring once again to mind this lesson that he's been teaching them all throughout these three years. We even mentioned it last week when we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. He takes what little the disciples has, and he multiplies it, for his glory and for their good. In this case, they've got nothing. But when they obey his direction, he is teaching them what they are going to be capable of through him. And that's important. That's important. And so here he is, boom, just dropping serious miracles. And so he, he calls out to them. They do it. They haul in this fish. And the next thing you know, look what happens next. In verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. He gets it. It clicks. Immediately he knows what's going on. And so he turns to Peter and the other disciples and he says, It's Jesus. And then in typical Peter fashion, remember, always acting before thinking and speaking before thinking, dude just straight puts on his coat and everything and dives into the water. That's Peter. iPhone and all. The dude's not thinking. He goes straight into the ocean and starts paddling or swimming as fast as he can, you know. Maybe it's breaststroke, freestyle, I don't know, but he's going, he's booking it. And totally ditching the other six to bring in this catch that they can't even haul in, right? He totally leaves them in his wake. That's Peter, who cannot wait to get to his master, to get to Jesus, who's on the shore. 
And look in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. So the others have caught up. With fish laid on this fire and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. See, God intends on using the things that we do for him. He intends on using our obedience. He's got a purpose. And so verse 11, I guess Peter felt bad about ditching the others because it says, so Simon Peter went aboard and he hauls in the net by himself. I mean, he's hauling this net and he counts them. There's 153 large fish in this net. And yet the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come on and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. And so Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples after his resurrection. And so Jesus is back on land and he's got this serious spread for these disciples. I mean, this is like the the ancient Hebrew equivalent of pigs in blankets. They've got bread and fish roasting on this fire. And he invites them to have breakfast, savior of the world, risen God in the flesh. Let's have breakfast, right? And so he invites them and they come and and in perhaps the first meal since the Last Supper, he invites the disciples to sit down with him around this charcoal fire. But I want you to notice the, 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 the verse that stands out in this chapter. In verse 12, it says, none of them dared ask him if he was the Lord. The implication of verse 12 is that they were silent. They get on shore, Peter drenched from swimming in his, all of his clothes. I don't, I don't know why he just didn't stay in his swimsuit. He instead, he puts on all of his clothes, jumps in the sea. And he gets back to Jesus, and now they're drenched. They're sitting there. They're exhausted. They've been fishing all night with nothing to shore for. Oh, oh wait, the 153 large fish that they just hauled onto the, onto the beach, right? And as they're eating the bread that Jesus breaks for them, doesn't it just sound like the Last Supper? As they're eating the fish that he's tearing for them, doesn't it just sound like that miracle with the 5,000? Multiplying what they have? And in this moment, listen, listen. In this moment, they're silent. It's just like old times, right? Except without all of the the, the joy we would expect and the fellowship we would assume that would be here in this meal. Instead, there's this awkward silence because every single one of them is feeling in that moment the weight of the shame, of the guilt, of walking away from Christ when he needed them most, of, of denying Jesus publicly. That's where we find the disciples. That's, that's where we encountered them. And in this moment, I want you to notice that shame totally robs them of joy. It totally, it totally paralyzes them. That's what guilt and shame does. And that's why it's important for us this moment, in this morning, to hear this. That revolutionary grace calls you out of sin and shame and leads us into new life with purpose. That's where the disciples are. And so look at how this statement plays out in this story. We're about to take it a step further. Jesus, more specifically, is about to address Peter intentionally. But remember the definition for grace. The limitless love of God 
for undeserving people. These men don't deserve it. None of us do. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty before God. Every single one of us is totally undeserving of the limitless love that God freely offers us. Because he loves us. Don't miss that about Jesus. And you're going to need to remember that because what you're about to read, what Jesus says, if you're not careful, it's going to sound the exact opposite of loving. If you're not careful, you're going to call into question why Jesus is doing what he's doing. But remember the limitless love of God. Look what happens. Look down in the next verse here in verse, chapter, uh, verse 12. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's Jesus' voice that breaks the stillness. And the first word is Simon. Can you imagine the nervous glances from the other six? I mean, what's going on? And so here's our first truth. You ready? Grace calls us out of sin and shame. Right here. Simon, son of John. It's a very formal way of talking. These, these two are best Friends, they've spent three years together. Peter is the foremost of the disciples, always listed first, the first disciple chosen by Jesus. In fact, they were so close, Jesus is the one who gave him the nickname Peter. Jesus named him that. It means the rock, Peter the rock, the one who always is bold enough to act, the one who stepped in front of Jesus right when he's about to be arrested and draws his sword to defend him by himself by the way. This Peter. But Jesus doesn't call him Peter the Rock. Jesus refers to him by the name he had before he ever met Jesus. He calls him Simon, son of John. And next he offers this question, do you love me more than these? A direct attack on the words Peter spoke in the upper room. In in chapter 26 in Matthew, verse 33, you'll find this. When Jesus predicts that they're all about to fall away upon his arrest, Peter speaks up and he says this. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Every single word that Jesus speaks here is chosen carefully, calculated to cut deep. Remember that. But our response might be, dang, Jesus. I mean, why in the middle of the six other dudes? I mean, this is not a private conversation. They're around this fire. They've had this awkward silence. And then the first thing Jesus says is, Simon, son of John, do you actually really, truly love me more than the rest of them? And and if we're not careful, we're going to see this and we might think, oh my goodness, that's hurtful, Jesus. That's hurtful in front of these other people. But I need you to understand something. Conviction, real conviction from God has a sting. It does. See, grace brings redemptive Pain, not punitive pain, not, not, not pain as punishment, 
It's redemptive pain. See, our body translates pain as, as the means to tell you, hey, stop doing that, or to learn a very valuable lesson, like don't touch the stove when it's red hot, right? And so God's limitless love for undeserving people will bring a little sting. If it means anything, it's going to hurt a little bit. Because Peter needs to know He needs to know that Jesus knows his deepest shame. And he has to to address and repent of his sin in order to experience complete restoration. And we all do. It's just that Peter's happened to be public. But notice this public restoration is necessary because his denial is in every single gospel. And if he is going to lead this group of men to change the world then the people are going to need to know that Jesus restored him to that leadership. Grace calls us out of sin and shame. And so Jesus lovingly meets Peter in his shame and calls this brokenness to his mind. To us, it seems like he's throwing words in his face, but Peter knows exactly what's happening because only twice in the entire Bible is the term charcoal fire mentioned. Once here in John 21, and in just a few chapters previously in John 18, you see the kind of fire that Peter was standing around when he denies that he ever knows Jesus is a charcoal fire. And our brains are hardwired. Our sense of smell totally is connected to the part of our brain that recalls memory. In fact, it's one of the strongest memory recalls. And the scent of charcoal, raise your hand if you prefer charcoal grilling over gas grilling. We've got a couple because the rest of you are lazy, so you use gas, right? Personally, I've got charcoal, and it's really cool because it smells good, you know. But the point that I'm making is we all have memories. I guarantee you, every single one of you, if I had a charcoal grill out there, which I thought about doing, if I had one out there, I guarantee you, memories would come to your mind. Sitting around maybe the pool, eating a hot dog on the 4th of July, or, or, or chilling with friends. I don't know. I don't know. But that's exactly what happens to Peter, only it's not a great moment. You see, shame has that ability to eclipse every good memory and cause you to think of nothing else. And so as he's in the middle of this charcoal fire, surrounded by his friends, that's when Jesus addresses him. And it makes the cut ever more deep. But notice the limitless love of God for undeserving people. Immediately following the question, Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. Jesus responds with a gracious commission. He says, then feed my sheep. Jesus restores Peter to leadership, not to, oh, the next next level. We've got a couple of rungs to get through. He restores him to leadership. Jesus, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, it says. But notice what happens next. Yes, we can see already that grace is calling Peter out of his sin and shame. But Jesus isn't done. See, grace also calls us into new life with purpose. But in order to experience that complete restoration, the pain is going to have to get a little bit worse. So in the next verse, look at it in verse 16. 
Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you even truly love me? And Peter was grieved, it says, because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus demands that Peter answer this terrible question three times. One for each moment of denial. To show Peter and those disciples there, as well as us reading, that God offers complete restoration. But forgiveness of sin only comes through faith in Jesus and repenting from that sin. You can't ever be good enough. You can't just expect that because God has limitless love for undeserving people that you will have that grace. See, Jesus meets Peter in his shame to free him from it. But first, Peter has to face it and face the fact that he really did deny Jesus. This is no small thing. This account of Peter's complete restoration is is recorded in John 21 for us so that we can learn the truth of God's grace and the limitless love he has. And and it it should bring to mind 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and totally just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise of cleansing means He removes sin from you. He says it a different way in the book of Psalm through David. He says this, He said, I have separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, a limitless distance, and I remember your sin no more. That's limitless love. And that kind of grace calls us into new life, not weighed down by the shame. And that's what's happening with Peter here. Awkward silence. Cheeks burning. Totally humiliated as Jesus calls him out in front of these other men. But he's not looking at them. His eyes are totally fixed on Jesus. And as much as it hurts, that pain comes with it, release. As Jesus restores him as the number one disciple, the leader in the early church. And so this, after, after each question, Jesus makes this statement. He said to him, tend my sheep. God needs Peter to be free of this shame. In order for him to be used by God. Jesus publicly and completely restores Peter for a purpose. New life with a purpose. And his purpose is to lead the flock of God. You're going to see this come up in in Peter's letter to us in 1 Peter, where he tells overseers like Shane and Paul and myself, he tells overseers to tend the flock of God. And Peter learned this lesson at the end of some pretty harsh but loving words. And so let's wrap up in this way. This is Peter's story of restoration, but our story is no different. 
Because every single one of us is guilty of denying Christ. Every single one of us bears similar shame to Peter. Every time we indulge in pornography, it's denial of Christ. Every time we abuse our spouse or our children, it's denial of Christ. Every single time we we, we live selfish lives with a lack of love for other people, including the dirty, dingy person on the side of the road selling the Sunday paper. Our love for money is denial of Christ. Anytime we place an object or a person in front of God and make it our idol, we deny the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior for the world. But remember the limitless love of God for totally undeserving people. Jesus went to the cross knowing that you would deny him. Jesus went to the cross already knowing that Peter was going to and had denied him in front of everyone. Jesus died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our disobedience and our selfishness and the stupid things we just chose to do without thinking. Jesus died for that, and he does so to give us grace so that we can experience complete restoration, so that we can come here to Revolution Church on a Sunday morning and regardless of technological difficulties... We can encounter Christ who desires to have a relationship with you so that you can experience His love and total forgiveness. So that you can leave these doors this morning without that weight that's dragging you down because of the things that you are guilty of. But listen, it's going to hurt a little bit. I want everyone in here to bow their heads and to close their eyes because this message, is, it, it was meant for me. That's why God was dealing with some things in my life, but it's also meant for you. And it would be a waste of time if after reading the words found in John 21, if we didn't do a little soul searching. Peter had to be brave enough to remain seated. Dude could have gotten up in the middle of Jesus' lashing and walked away for good. But he stayed and he allowed Jesus to cut deep because just like a skillful surgeon removing and cutting with his knife a cancerous tumor or an unpleasant boil, sometimes we have to go through a little bit of pain in order to feel the release of the weight of the guilt and shame that you carry every day. And so right here, in this moment, pray to God. Invite the Holy Spirit. I understand this is a brave thing, but remember last week we talked about having revolutionary faith. Have enough faith to ask God to reveal to you your deepest point of shame. And then give it to God. Give it to Him. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and overladen, and I will take your burden and give you rest. Jesus has that power. Are you willing to endure a slight sting to remember your darkest moment in order to experience a lifetime of release?
I'm going to give you a moment. Grace calls us out of sin and shame into new life with purpose. Peter's purpose was to lead the early church. Our purpose is equally important and valuable. You are forgiven so that you can forgive and lead others into the same loving forgiveness that Jesus offers you this morning. Some of you might be in this room facing guilt for something that you've done. Believe in Jesus. Confess that sin and that guilt and allow Jesus to restore life to you. Repent from that sin. Repentance is simply this. It means you were once walking in one direction towards yourself, selfish desires, terrible thoughts, lust for money. It means turning around and walking towards God. Living for what He desires. That's repentance. So repent of that sin. Maybe you've been sinned against and you are withholding forgiveness from someone else. Maybe they've even come and apologized, but the wound in your mind is too deep. But listen, you were forgiven so that you could forgive. Release that person. Pray for them right now in your mind where you are. Ask God to strengthen you to forgive them. You don't walk this road alone. Finally, maybe there's been someone heavy on your heart. Someone who you know needs that forgiveness from God. And you just have to be brave enough and loving enough to tell them. I'm going to pray for us.